0: We uh, are so excited about what's going on. You'll notice if you got a handout on the way in, go ahead and pull that out for a second. And notice on the left side, on the inside of it, there's a lot coming up during the rest of this season. There's a lot of opportunities to jump in and dive in next Sunday night. Our Spanish congregation has Noche Divina. And even if you don't know Spanish, you're invited. Uh, It's so incredible. It's so incredible what happens uh, through that ministry. It's just really, really encouraging. And then the next Sunday, the second Sunday night of the month, we have our gathering in here, it's really a Christmas gathering called the Sounds of Christmas. It's going to be a fun, fun, fun night. In fact, you guys love hanging out so much. We even moved the time up from six to five. So it's going to be five to seven, which will have part in here, but a lot of things to do outside as well. And it's going to be a great night. And certainly next Sunday, we kick off our Christmas series called Joy to Your World. And Pastor Chuck's got an incredible, incredible word. So if you've got some friends, some neighbors, some coworkers that you haven't invited yet, this would be an incredible season to invite them to be part of it. And then next month or or the month later in January, uh, if you're here back in the summer, I introduced you to Glenn and Lisa Bailey and their son Jackson who are getting prepared to go live in Kenya for about four years. And so our church has, uh, has been praying for them, been prepping and being part of that, but uh, they're having a fundraiser up here the first Sunday night of January. And it's gonna be an incredible way to help partner with them in ministry. So it's gonna be so, so good. But you'll notice on the other side of your handout, there's some blanks in there today. And so if you're a note taker, I wanna invite you to jump in today Uh, If you've got Crayola, pencil, blood, mascara, Sharpie, whatever you have, you can use that this morning and it'd be all right. But uh, most of you know that we just returned from Kenya a little over a week ago. It was an incredible trip. We had our largest team yet. We had our most impactful trip yet. It was so, so encouraging. So people have been asking me, how was your trip? How was your trip? How do you sum that up in one minute, which is really, really difficult. Uh, But two things really stood out to me from that trip. One is the power of hope the power of hope. I don't know if you've ever been in a season where you felt hopeless and somebody at just the right time showed up and they looked you in the eye and they reminded you that hope is still there. And so we saw the power of that. We saw being able to work with HIV and AIDS clients that honestly felt like their lives were over. And so we saw the power of hope. And the second thing that stood out to me is just the idea, and maybe you know this already, but the idea that there is more than one kind of poverty more than one kind of poverty. A lot of times when people think about what we do in Kenya, they think about material poverty. And that's certainly true. Material poverty is when you don't have even the basic needs met. You don't have the proper shelter or food or clothing or money. or right. There's some necessities that are sort of the, the, uh, the, the baseline of life. So that's material poverty. And certainly that's true, but there's two other kinds of poverty. One of those is spiritual poverty. In other words, you could have a lot of stuff. You can have a great house, a great paycheck. You could have a lot of stuff, but internally still be a million miles away from God. Externally, man, I've got it together. Internally, uh, distant from Heavenly Father, this, that's spiritual poverty. But there's a third kind of poverty that Kenya always reminds me of, and it's what's called relational poverty. Relational poverty. I told y'all this uh, when I first went to Kenya six years ago, when we first showed up and we walked into the slums where there's literally just house after house, after house, after house, five by five, six by six, these kind of small shacks without running water, without electricity. When I first got there the first time I thought, man, who could live this way? Who could live this way? How in the world could anybody live this way? But then by the end of the week, after seeing the the richness of relationships, seeing church community, seeing families coming together, there's this sense inside of me that went from who could live this way to me being a little bit envious, saying, man, I wish I had more of what they have. This reminder that yes, maybe they're physically impoverished, but man, they are relationally, relationally thriving. And I was just thinking about that on the flight home from Kenya and just thinking about our generation I mean, here we are walking into one of the busiest seasons of the year, and we're thinking about all the relationships in our life. And what dawned on me is that for most of us, maybe you're not materially impoverished and maybe you're not necessarily spiritually impoverished, but there's a lot of people around us that really are relationally impoverished. And what I mean by that is our generation, you could follow hundreds of people on Instagram, You could be friends with 300 folks on Facebook, and yet at the end of the day, when something blows up in your life, you don't really know who you could turn to. Or maybe during the holidays you're reminded of stress that goes on, and maybe you're reminded of broken relationships and broken promises. And and maybe there was even tension this week, and it reminds us that while physically we may have it together, and maybe in some cases spiritually we're we're doing okay, that maybe the missing ingredient in our lives, maybe the thing that we need this season is not something, but someone. Maybe the missing ingredient is a relationship. And there are so many places in scripture that talk about relationships. There's so many places that we could look at today where God has so much to say about it. But one of those places where this is actually modeled is all the way back in the beginning, all the way back in the garden of Eden. So if you have a Bible, if you have a device with the app on it, I wanna invite you to follow along in Genesis chapter two and in Genesis chapter three. If you know the context of all this, in Genesis chapter two, God's just created everything. God's spoken into existence. God created uh, the earth. God created the, the days. God created man and woman. God has already created all the animals. God has created everything. And yet in Genesis chapter two, there's this picture of connectivity. Was Eden a physical place? Absolutely, but it also is this this picturesque place of what it looks like to have connectivity with God, to have connectivity with each other. There's the sense of wholeness. There's the sense of connection. There's the sense that all is well in the world until the serpent shows up. When the serpent shows up, the serpent begins to tempt Eve by placing doubt in her mind, begins by asking questions, begins to, by, by almost accusing God. And in that moment, Eve and then Adam begin to do the one thing that God said not to do, to eat from the tree of knowledge. And, and so in that moment, the serpent convinces them, you would be happier on your own. The serpent convinces them, you would be happier doing your own thing. You'll be happier living your own way. And so in that moment, sin enters into the world. In that moment, shame is introduced into the world. In that moment, there's a tension between the relationship with God. There's tension in their relationship with each other. And from the garden on, we've seen the fruit of that. From the garden on, we've seen strained relationships. From the garden on, we've seen shame entered into relationships. From that moment on, we've seen broken marriages and broken friendships and, and the alienation between parents and their kids. This all started when sin entered into the world. This picture of wholeness, this this picture of connectedness was replaced with shame. And instead of being fully known, instead of being fully acceptable, they begin to shrink away into hiding. And my question this morning is, how do you come out of hiding? My question is, if the greatest thing that we could give is not maybe some physical gift, but the gift of relationship, how do we recapture that? I mean, how do we get back to connectedness? How do we get back to what was broken? How do we get back to to replacing all the tension and the shame and the drama and the doubt and the anxiety? How do we get back to this place? And so this morning, man, I just wanna invite you to jot down a couple of these notes as we think about strategies to come out of hiding. And the first one, this is number one, if you're a note taker, number one, if we're gonna recapture this, we've gotta recognize our need for connection. We've got to recognize it. That every single one of us was wired for connectivity. Every single one of us were created for relationship. We see this all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter two and verse 18, it says, then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. So God's just created everything. God's spoken everything into existence. God created the earth, God created the sun, the moon, God created the animals, God created everything. And at the end of his creation, he stops And he says, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper who is just right for him. Verse 19, so the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what man would call them. And man chose a name for each one. This boggles my mind. I mean, early on when I'd read this passage, I would just breeze right past that and not take into account that Adam literally named every single animal. He named every single creature. That didn't happen in a moment. That didn't happen in an afternoon. That's like days, weeks, months, maybe even years. I mean, can can you imagine that job? Can you imagine at first he starts out, hey that that name sounds good, hey, that makes sense, and then by the end you're just scrambling for names? I mean, how else do you explain mosquito? Where in the world does that name come from, right? And so Adam sees all of these things paraded in front of him. And yet here's what it says. Verse 20 of chapter two, but there was still no helper just right for him. So in the middle of this garden, in the middle of this perfect place, in the middle of being in a space with God himself, there was still something missing And what was missing was not another part of the earth. What was missing was not another animal. What was missing was a person. And so that need for connectivity, that need for relationship, it was hardwired in us by God himself. That, that desire to connect with your spouse, that desire to connect with your friends, that desire to connect with your kids, that desire to be known and to know somebody, that's not a defect, that's not something broken, that is something that was given by God himself to be placed inside of you. And I think sometimes we feel guilty when we feel lonely, or sometimes, especially when we get into the holidays and we think about loved ones that have passed away, or we think about relationships that didn't flourish like we thought they would, or we think about, man, I thought I'd be married by now, or I thought I'd be connected. Sometimes we feel bad. Sometimes we feel broken. Sometimes we feel like there's something wrong with us, but that points us to the fact that we were created for connection by God himself. We gotta recognize that. And so what happens, it says in verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord took out of him one of man's ribs, he closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made woman from that rib and he brought her to the man. So at the end of the day, after he's named all of these animals, there's something missing. And so God creates the woman. And the moment that he sees the woman, here's what it says in verse 23, the man cries out and says, at last, at last, finally, Finally, this one is bone of my bone and this one is flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why man leaves his father and mother, why he is joined to his wife and the two are are united into one. And then listen to this last verse in chapter two, listen to verse 25. It says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. There's a sense of wholeness. There's a sense of connectedness. Were they physically naked? Absolutely, but they were emotionally naked. They were spiritually naked. They were in this place of connection. They were in this place of openness. They were in this place of all is well. It's this picture of what could be. That's why I say the thing that may be missing isn't something, but someone, because you're wired for connection. Throughout scripture, you see the power of relationship Throughout scripture you see that God meant for us to live in community. We've talked about it before here on a Sunday morning, that in every single one of our lives, we need to be intentional about the relationships in our life, we all need friends. We need relationships in our life that make us stronger. We all need relationships in our life that help us find strength. We all need relationships in our life that love us enough that they tell us the truth. We need each other. But the problem is so often we ignore it. So often we try to drown it. So often we think something's broken and it starts this idea of coming out of hiding this idea of coming out and being known it starts with recognizing that need for connection we saw this when we were in Kenya Uh, one of our friends friends of our church that serves there in Kenya is a guy named Cornell he's one of the co-founders of care for AIDS the organization we partner with over the last six or seven years to help hundreds of people come out of AIDS and HIV and to live beyond their status, to have 25 or more years added to that. It's an unbelievable organization. They've seen 13, 14,000 people go through the program, have each of their lives extended by 25, 30 years. They've seen over 4,000 salvations of people that have come through the program. They've they've helped prevent 40,000 plus kids from becoming orphans. I mean, it's unbelievable the power and the effectiveness of their ministry. But one of the things I was reminded of is that Cornell told us where sort of this all started for him personally was when his mom called him back home and Cornell's mom said, Cornell, I just want you to know I've got AIDS and I'm gonna die very, very soon. I need you to help take care of the family, your siblings. And by the time Cornell found out, his mom had been bedridden for weeks and weeks and weeks. She'd been sick for a long, long time. And basically she had called him by her bedside to let him know that she was about to die. And Cornell said that that's the normal message. That's what most people over there think. They don't think there's any hope. They don't think there's any cure. They don't think that there's anything that can be done. In fact, when people find out that somebody in their neighborhood has HIV or AIDS, they back away from them. They become modern day lepers. They feel alone and they read, they read all of these billboards for so many years that says AIDS kills, AIDS kills, AIDS kills, that they begin to believe that the moment they find out they have AIDS, they just go home by themselves waiting to die. I think, man, I'm just gonna, this is, this is the end. So Cornell's mom thought this is the end. And so she hadn't, didn't have interaction with friends. She didn't have any job that she was doing. She was just waiting to die. One of the powerful things that Cornell provided is, yes, he provided a diet for her. Yes, he provided some funding for her, but he provided hope for her, community for her, connectedness for her. So he started feeding her. He started helping her clean up. And within three weeks, she went from being bedridden for months and ready to die. She was able to get up again. And then a few weeks later, he was able to provide some capital for her to start her own business. Why? To get her out of her house so that she'd interact with other healthy people to give her a purpose to live for. And now 15, 16, 17 years later, this lady that was ready to die alone is now thriving in community with other people. That's the power of connection that sometimes we think, man, I want a quick fix. I want some external thing. And we forget that number one, we were created for connectedness. So if we're gonna get out of hiding, number one, recognize that need. And then number two, a second strategy for coming out of hiding is to reject the counterfeit versions of this, to reject the fake, the counterfeit. That if we're not careful, what happens is relationships are hard. If we're not careful, connecting with other people is difficult. If we're not careful, instead of truly connecting the way that God created us to, we settle for the substitute. We settle for something cheaper. We settle for something fake. And so at the end of chapter 2, we see this picture of connectivity where it says they are both naked but not ashamed. But listen to what happens in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the serpent shows up. And the serpent begins to plant seeds of doubt in Eve's mind and the the serpent begins to say, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? Uh, Did God really hold that back from you? And so the the serpent begins to place doubts and questions in her mind, questioning, does God really know what's best? Does God really care? Does, Does God really care about what is best for your life? And in verse four of chapter three, the serpent says, you will not die. God knows that your eyes will be open, As soon as you eat, you'll be like God. You'll know both good from evil. And in that moment, Eve is tempted. It says in verse six that she saw that the tree was beautiful, that its fruit looked delicious, that she wanted the wisdom and so she ate of it. And then she takes it to her husband, he eats of it. And then here's what it says in verse seven. At that moment, their eyes are open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In chapter two, it's this picture of wholeness. In chapter two, we're connected, everything's great. In chapter two, we've got this open relationship with God. We've got this open relationship with each other. It's this picturesque moment. They're naked and not ashamed. And then in chapter three, once sin enters into the world, what sin jumps into this picture, they go from being naked and not ashamed to feeling shame and trying to cover themselves. And so they sow fig leaves to try to f- cover their shame. Figlies are never meant to be worn. Figlies are never meant to be clothing. Figlies were never meant to be the thing that that we find our identity in. So what happens for Adam and Eve is in that moment, they essentially create two versions of themselves. They create the external version of themselves, the clothed version of themselves, the figly version of themselves. That's the version we project to other people. That's the version that we show to people at work. That's the version we show to the people around us. That's the external part. They created this external versus this internal of who they really are. And so shame enters in anxiety enters in, doubt begins to enter in, and in that moment, they settle for fig leaves. What's interesting is that this story starts with a tree. You fast forward all the way up to Jesus when he dies on a cross made of a tree, the story has two trees in it. The problem is we often choose the wrong tree See, fig leaves were never meant to be worn. Now, maybe you didn't pick out a fig leaf today to say, hey, I'm gonna wear my Sunday best fig leaf today. But chances are, we've got emotional fig leaves in our life. We've got counterfeit connectedness. We've got things that that cover our shame because we feel inadequate, cover our, our, our disconnectedness, and we settle for the counterfeit. For some people, it's they're wired as somebody that's overly confident. Is confidence a good thing? Absolutely. Is confidence can be used in a good way? Absolutely. But if we're not in a, healthy place, that confidence can become a fig leaf where we use it to project some image on the outside, where we feel ultra vulnerable on the inside, where we begin to run over people, we begin to take them for granted. And instead of developing relationships, if that relationship doesn't produce what we want it to, instead of developing it, we discard it and move on. That's a fig leaf. For some people, it's the fig leaf of peacefulness. Is being at peace a good thing? Absolutely, being somebody that helps bring opposing parties together, is that a good thing? Absolutely, but in an unhealthy place, it becomes a fig leaf where on the outside, you say yes to everybody around you, but on the inside, this anger begins to grow and you either stuff it or you blow up, but at some point, it's just a fig leaf. For some people, perfectionism becomes a fig leaf. Is it good to be a detail person? Absolutely. Is it good to follow the rules? Absolutely. Is it good to, to, to care about how things are done? Absolutely. But in an unhealthy place, we become our own worst critic. In an unhealthy place, it becomes a fig leaf where we judge our worth based on did we do it perfectly or did we not? And that self-damaging view of ourselves begins to project itself on everybody else where we judge everybody around us. It's a fig leaf. Sometimes it's the fig leaf of being helpful being helpful is typically a good thing. But somewhere along the way, if we're not in a healthy place, it becomes part of our identity where we want to be known as that person that helps. And if we're in an unhealthy place, that fig leaf says, I'm not actually helping because I think it's what's best for you or I want what's best for you. If we're not careful, that fig leaf finds their identity in it and and begins to help for the purpose of being recognized. And if we're not recognized, if we're not appreciated, then we get angry and bitter and jaded. That's a fig leaf. For others, it's work. And for others, it's, man, I, I, I want to be known as somebody that gets it done. Is getting it done an important thing? Absolutely. But can it become a fig leaf where we find our identity and our role instead of our soul, where we keep pushing, 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 we keep molding, molding, molding. And at the end of the day, if we're not careful, it's a fig leaf. For others, it's, hey, look how unique I am. Hey, look how I'm wired uh, in, in such a special way. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. But in an unhealthy place, we find our identity in our creativity. or We find our identity in, in who we are, and we forget who we actually are on the inside. It becomes a fig leaf. For some people, it's the sense of adventure man, I'm adventurous. I, I say yes to everything. I'm, I'm up for new things. I'm, I'm, I'm up for trying something new. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. But in an unhealthy place, it becomes a fig leaf where they're, where they're so busy on the go that they're uncomfortable with being still. They're so busy trying something new that they never fully develop where God has them with what he's placed in their life. If we're not careful, this positive desire to connect can be shaded by the counterfeit. And it's just not the real thing. Fig leaves were never meant to be worn. Several years ago, Laura and I took a trip up to New York City uh, during the Christmas holidays. We thought, hey, it'd be awesome, we've never been. Let's go up when all the lights are on, the trees are out. And, and uh, so we uh, took like a two night trip up to New York City. Now, Laura is uh, always, uh, a detailed person, she does everything right. She did, There's nothing risky about her lifestyle, but there's one thing that she wanted to do while we were up there and it was to find a knockoff Louis Vuitton purse. Now I'm not gonna ask how many of y'all have done that while you're up there. I, I can't believe I'm even talking about where we're recording this. So who knows what's gonna happen after this broadcast. But uh, so we're up in New York city and it's like, it'd be awesome to find a knockoff purse because she's a sucker for a deal. And uh, she loves going to secondhand stores, spending three bucks and coming out with seven outfits. I'm like, how do you even do that? I don't know, right? And so we're up there and sure enough, there's people selling these knockoff purses. And at first we we're too nervous. We'd heard stories and whatnot. And so we were pretty cautious. No, 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 that's not the one, that's not the one. And I think it was finally on our last day in the city, uh, we were down at Battery Park and there was some people that opened up these sheets on the ground. And sure enough, there's knockoff purses. And so Laura got, got brave and she's like looking over her shoulder and ends up buying this purse. And we were proud of it. She was like, man, look how awesome this is. Look how great it is. It looks just like the real thing. And then I don't remember if it was the flight home or the next day, but we were looking at it and we're like, yeah, it looks great. But when you flip it around, it's actually upside down. (laughs) Looks good on the outside, not necessarily the real thing on the inside. You see what I'm saying? And that's what counterfeit does to us. Man, it looks good, man. We project this image, but on the inside, it's not the real thing. So what do you do with that? Well, it starts with recognizing, man, you were designed for connectedness. Number two, it's like, man, I'm gonna look for areas of my life that I'm, I'm trying to project something that I'm not. I'm gonna reject those counterfeits. But then strategy number three is to reclaim true connectedness, reclaim it. Well, how do you do that? What's amazing in Genesis three is God actually models this himself. And if we were to fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus lives this out. This is where true redemption comes from. This is our true model for this. Underneath that third point, I'm just gonna give these to you briefly, but underneath that third point, Let me just describe to you what a safe relationship looks like or what a safe friendship looks like as we launch into December and we begin to spend time with the people around us. What does it look like to get back to connectedness? What does this look like to have safe relationship or safe friends? Well, the first characteristic is number one, they initiate, they don't invade. They initiate, they don't invade. And so in other words, it says in verse eight, when the cool evening breeze was blowing through, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking in the garden. So they hid themselves from the God among the trees and God called to the man and said, where are you? So when shame enters in, Adam and Eve's best idea is, hey, let's cover our shame, let's hide from God. But God, when he shows up, he doesn't beat them up. God doesn't uh, accuse them. God doesn't, doesn't rake them over the coals. Instead, God initiates a conversation. He's not invading. He's not pushing himself in, he's he's walking towards them. Man, think about that, this holiday, if we would initiate where there's been some brokenness in a relationship, or maybe it's in your marriage to begin to initiate instead of invading. Here's a second characteristic of safe friends. Number two, they question, they don't accuse. They question, they don't accuse. So when God shows up, he's not accusing them. It says in verse 10, Uh, when God asks, where are you? Why are you hiding? Adam responds and says, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid, I was afraid because I was naked. So there's this shame, there's this self judgment, but listen to what it says in verse 11. God asks him, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Who told you this? Does God need this for information? Is God all knowing and yet somehow he doesn't know this happened? No, 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 no. He's asking questions because questions have a way of causing us to drop our guard. Think about it, the last time somebody confronted you and they accused you, they accused you, they made you feel like they were right and they were wrong. How did you respond? Typically we lock up, typically we put our defenses up. Typically those conversations don't go anywhere, but when people ask us honest, open questions, man, it helps us to drop our fig leaves. Number three, third characteristic of a safe friend, they tell the truth. They don't deny. They tell the truth, they don't deny. God doesn't wax over it. God doesn't act like it's not a big deal. God doesn't put a Band-Aid on it. Instead, God tells them the truth. He says in verse 17, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, this ground is cursed because of you. All of your life is gonna be a struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grain. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made for you are made from dust, you will turned to dust. God is shooting straight with them. He's not being ugly about it. He's not beating them up about it, but he is telling them there are consequences. That's what a safe person does. They tell the truth, they don't deny. They tell the truth. The fourth characteristic is they respond, they don't run away. In verse nine, God calls out, he says, where are you? Did he know where Adam was? Absolutely. Did he know where Eve was? Absolutely. But instead of, of, of running away from him, he responds to him. He says, Where are you? Verse 10 Adam says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because of you. And what you find is while Adam is trying to cover and while Adam is trying to run away, God's responding to him. God's walking towards him. God's modeling redemption. He's modeling, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not scared of you. Our relationship isn't over. He's walking towards him, responding to him, not running away. That's what safe friendships do. That's what safe relationships do. That in the middle of those tough conversations, in the middle of those tough seasons in our relationships, instead of running away from it, we respond to it. We step into the messiness. And then here's the last one, number five, someone that's a safe person, somebody that's modeling this, they protect, they don't expose. They protect, they don't expose. All of us have have been caught in the crossfires of being vulnerable with somebody and them using it against us. All of us have been in those moments where somebody's like, hey, did you hear what they did? Did you hear, did you hear, did That's not what God does. That's not what Jesus does. It says in verse 20, the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. Verse 21, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Think about this for a second, Adam and Eve feel shame Adam and Eve feel this disconnection. Adam and Eve feel like life is over. And so they put on fig leaves. They put on this external front. They try to cover their shame. They try to cover their sin. They try to cover up what they have blown. And yet when God shows up, God performs the first animal sacrifice in all of scripture in order to cover their shame. Think about that. This is a picture of what was gonna happen years and years later, when after throughout the Old Testament, the way that sins were dealt with was there was some external sacrifice that that once a year there would be this high priest and this high priest would offer this animal sacrifice as a way of covering sin, covering sin, covering sin. And every year you had to do it again. And every year you had to do it again. Every year you had to do it again because in the Old Testament, sins were just covered. But when you fast forward all the way up to the New Testament, and you read about God becoming man in the form of Jesus, Jesus living a perfect, sinless life, Jesus going through a sham trial, going all the way to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for his own sins, he died for my sins, your sins, and the sins of the world. And in the Old Testament, The way that you dealt with sin is you just tried to cover it. In the Old Testament, you just tried to cover it. In the Old Testament, you just keep covering, 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 year after year after year, cover your sin, cover your sin, cover your sin. But when Jesus dies on the cross, He no longer covers our sins, He removes them. He takes, He says, bring me your shame, bring me your brokenness, Bring me your fig leaves, bring me all of that fake stuff and give it to me and I'll clothe you, not in fig leaves, but I'll clothe you in my righteousness. Jesus models redemptive relationships. God demonstrates redemptive relationships. As we walk into December, maybe Maybe the thing we need to give this season isn't another physical gift, isn't maybe even a gift card, maybe it isn't even some thing. Maybe the greatest gift that we could give to the people around us this season is the same gift that Jesus offers to every single one of us. That we'd give the gift of forgiveness. And maybe... I. I don't pretend this is easy. I know in a room this size and with as many people as we have watching, there's, there's some real issues going on in some of our relationships. I don't pretend that it's easy. So maybe, maybe you're not ready to give the full gift of forgiveness yet, but maybe you would even just adventure to say, I'm at least gonna give the gift of space. I'm gonna suspend judgment this season. I'm gonna hold my tongue a little bit more this season And I'm just gonna create a little bit of space because sometimes it's in that space that change becomes possible. Sometimes it's in that space that healing begins to take place. Could it be that the greatest thing that you gave is not something, but someone, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of connectivity. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Would you close your eyes? I'd love to be able to pray for us and pray with us. In just a moment, we're gonna enter into a time where we come to the table and we participate in what we call the Lord's Supper, whether you call it the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, what's powerful about it is this is a reminder of what Jesus did on the cross that true redemption is found in that relationship with him. True redemption is found in submitting to him. Uh, Relationships aren't easy. The only way that we can live this out the way that we're meant to is by submitting to the relationship with him. And so if that's never happened for you today, the greatest thing that could happen is for you to ask Jesus to do in you what he modeled for us. You could start that by by talking to him through prayer in your head and your heart to say, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that my sin separates me from you, but I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I believe you're alive today. And as best as I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and save me. Would you take my shame? Would you take my fig leaves and give me true wholeness today? For some of you, it may be that you've known Jesus for a little bit of time or maybe honestly for a long, long time. But maybe today God's leaned in and he's pointed to some area of your life where you've tried to find your identity in something or someone else besides your relationship with him. Maybe today you just want to say, Jesus, would you take my shame? Jesus, would you take these fig leaves and help me to be whole? Would you help me to model this to the people around me? Would you help me to be a safe relationship, a safe friend, a safe spouse, a safe child? Would you help me to live out this kind of relationship? In Just a few moments, I'm gonna finish praying. And when I finish praying, we're gonna stand together And you'll find all across the room, we've got tables set up with the elements of the Lord's Supper. You'll just find trays that have stacks of two cups in them. The bottom cup has a wafer that represents the bread, the the body of Christ. The top cup has the juice that represents that Jesus shed his blood for us. And so when I finish praying, we'll stand. And I'll just invite you, if you know Christ personally, if you've put your faith in him, man, this is for you. You can come to the, the table nearest to you. There's tables in the back. There's tables across the front. If you've got a dietary restriction, there's some gluten-free right here in the center, but I'm gonna invite you in just a moment to come, take a stack of those cups and bring it back to your seats and then either stand or sit very quietly, very reverently. And then maybe spend some moments talking to your heavenly father about this gift that he gives to us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you model what safe relationships look like. God, help us never take for granted the price that you paid. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. If you'll stand together, and right now, very quietly, very reverently, if you know Christ personally, I just invite you to come to whatever table is nearest to you and to take these cups back with you to your seat. And as you get to your seat, to very prayerfully, very quietly, spend a few moments with your heavenly Father, and then we'll take them together. on that night that Jesus instituted this, he took what had been hundreds of years of tradition that ever since they left Egypt, they had this meal called the Passover meal. And it was a reminder that annually they would be reminded, you literally were rescued from slavery. You were literally brought into a new life. And so every time they took that meal, it was that reminder. Jesus took that that memory, Jesus took that, that ritual. And he said, look, this all points to the day that I die on the cross. He said, you remember that old covenant that said one day there's coming a day that I'm gonna remove your sins and remember them no more. Jesus says, this is it. This is how it's gonna happen. Through my body that's gonna be broken for you, through my blood that's gonna be shed for you. This is how forgiveness is made possible. Not through works, not through covering, not through external, but through what Jesus did on the cross. Father, thank you for this moment for this reminder that you died and you rose again, help us to never forget. And Jesus took that bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And he took that cup, he said, this, is the cup of the new covenant, And what he was indicating is that yes, there'd be a day that he'd shed his blood. And as he shed his blood, he made removal of sin possible. Well, how far did he remove it? The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. That's a promise that Jesus makes. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. don't mind, would you stand quietly with me? And I'd love for us to be able to pray together as we get ready to launch into another week, as we get ready to start this amazing, amazing Christmas season, that we'd walk into it with hope, that we'd walk into it with this sense of purpose, that we'd walk into the conversations we have and the relationships that we have, and we would do the best we can to model what God has modeled and what Jesus has modeled in our own life. Instead of being accusers, we, we would be people that come and we'd initiate relationship. That instead of being people that expose other people's flaws, we'd come alongside and help cover them. And instead of running away from those tough moments that we'd step into them, not to prove a right, but to help make things right, to enter into a healthier, more whole relationship. Because often the thing that's missing is not something, it's someone. That's the gift relationship. Father, thank you so much for my friends today. Thank you for those that are watching online. Father, I pray that you'd go before us and that you really would make our crooked path straight. That where there's relationships that are strained, hurt, or hard, Father, you would do what only you can do to help make that crooked path straight. Father, would you come inside of us to give us that sense of your nearness? that we can, because you did, that we can live this out because you modeled it, that your spirit enables us to live this out. And Father, when it's tough or lonely or hard, Father, would you pick us up and carry us? God, would you help us to truly feel your presence and your voice say that you love us. Father, help us to live this season in peace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your Sunday, a great week, and we look forward to celebrating the Christmas season with you starting next Sunday. Love you guys. Have a great day.